Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and last week we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, which is not a typical passage uh, that gets preached on. But that passage is important because it serves as a bridge between Jesus' baptism, where God the Father declared that Jesus is his beloved Son, and it's a bridge to this week's passage, too, on uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And Luke ends his genealogy with the phrase, the son of Adam, the son of God, indicating, as he's done all along to this point in his gospel, that Jesus is the God-man, who is both fully God and fully man. And here in chapter 4, the claim that Jesus is the beloved and faithful son of the Father is put to the test by the devil. Well, again, we are in chapter 4. We're going to pick it up with verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for this time we have together meditating and thinking through your word, that this would be good for our hearts and our minds, that we would see, maybe for the first time, how much you love us, how much you care for us, how much you have given so that we might be yours. And in turn, Lord, we pray that we would respond, that we'd want to walk in your ways, not because it makes us right or perfect or anything else other than that you love us and we want to be with you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we read in verse 1 that Jesus, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. This is right after his baptism. So Jesus was both full of the Spirit, and we saw this actually in chapter 3 with his baptism and the descent from heaven of the Spirit upon him. And he was also led by the Spirit. So the Spirit both, as you think about it, armed Jesus for battle, and we see this with many prophets or judges in the Old Testament. So you could just think of, I don't know, Samson or Elijah or David. They're all examples of this. But the Spirit led him, led him into the wilderness too. So these are two separate but obviously related works of the Spirit which are indicative of God's leading and Jesus' willing submission to be led by the Spirit. Now, as an aside, you and I enjoy that same Spirit within us, 
individually and together as the body of Christ. So we too, because of Christ, are both armed uh, by the Spirit. Paul talks about that. And we're led by him too. And sometimes he leads us into the wilderness as well. Well, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And during that time, he was both tempted by the devil, even as he, he fasted. And at the end of that time, as Luke notes, he was hungry. I, I imagine he was. And that last day detail might seem uh, obvious. But again, and this, this is a big deal Jesus was fully human, just as he was fully God, and he was just as dependent on food as we are. So for most of us to go really just a, a few hours without snacking seems impossible. So imagine going a day, or days, or 40 days without eating. So even as fasting was a common feature of, of Jewish religious culture, and, and by the way, if you're paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus assumes fasting will be part of our religious devotion too. Well, to fast 40 days is extraordinary, but it's not impossible. So I've actually known people who've, who've done this. Uh, and if you've ever done any amount of fasting though, it's, it's uncanny how it both viscerally shows you just how dependent on food we are that is, your life depends on something outside of you to keep you going, even as it, it sharpens the mind and winnows uh, your issues down in the process. Well, the details about 40 days in the wilderness have immediate connections to Moses and his 40-year stint as a shepherd in the wilderness under the authority of his father-in-law Jethro. And obviously, it's also tied to Israel and Israel's own 40 years in the wilderness after the Exodus, led by God and her daily dependence on God for bread, the manna. There are also connections to Adam and his temptation in the garden, and we are meant to make connections between the serpent and his craftiness and what the devil does here. Believe it or not, there are still even more connections to the prophet Ezekiel but we will discuss those next week in connection to what happens in Nazareth when Jesus preaches in his hometown in the next passage after this. Well, the first temptation, as you read there, directly attacks Jesus in his physically weakened state. And this is often when temptation comes for anyone. And the devil says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Notice the attack is through his hunger. It is through his hunger, but it is aimed at his status and his identity. If you are the Son of God, then feed yourself. And the devil calls into question who, who Jesus really is in ways that are, are similar uh, to what the Jewish people would later question Jesus to in his ministry. So, for example, in Luke 23, at the end of his gospel, when while he's on the cross, the leadership of Israel say to Jesus, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself and come off the cross. So in other words, prove you are who you say you are by saving yourself from this pain and suffering. And so we who can barely go a, a few hours without having to put something into our mouths have a hard time recognizing just how strenuous, strenuous it would have been to go 40 days without food and then in the midst of that, face this temptation, let alone the other two as well. But notice that the devil 
like what we see in Genesis 3, called into question what God had said. In Genesis 3, the devil called into question whether Adam and Eve would really die if they ate prematurely from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here in Luke 4, the devil called into question God's pronouncement that Jesus is his beloved son. So Eve, will, will you really die? Really die because of this forbidden tree? Surely God is holding something back from you unfairly. Jesus, the Spirit led you into the wilderness. He led you to this place. And here you are starving. Is this how God treats his beloved son? You have the power to turn this stone into bread. You were the one through whom and for whom all things were made. Why not save yourself from this pain? This is not an inconvenience or merely an irritation. You're dying. And by the way, that's what fasting is a symbol of, that you are dying, that your life depends on another. You can do all things, Jesus, through the word of your mouth. Is it wrong to create bread from a stone and put it into your mouth? Now notice too, like we see in the garden, the temptation involved taking something that God had not provided or perhaps had held back. In the garden, the woman took what was held back from her and her husband. See, Adam and Eve could eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life, including the tree of life. But for the time being, this one was held back from them. And the issue, of course, was not the fruit itself but whether or not humanity would listen to the voice of God and would trust him. So it was a test. It was a test. So like with marriage vows and public claims to faithfulness, it's one thing to say you will be faithful in public on that one day when everyone's watching. It's quite another to live it out. So the test of faithfulness doesn't happen during the ceremony. The test comes in all the days and years Afterwards, This temptation is also very much like when Israel was in the wilderness and depended on God for the manna and the quail, and they grumbled about it. Did God lead us out into Egypt only for us to die of starvation in the wilderness? So where Adam and Israel failed, or they grumbled, which was a failure, Jesus remained faithful. Now, this temptation also anticipates... Jesus' future ministry as the bread of heaven, right? The devil knows that all of Scripture looks forward to Jesus. He knows that Jesus can provide manna from heaven if he wants to and that it is very easy to have people follow or serve you merely for providing daily provisions. So as the Roman poet Juvenal pointed out, what, roughly 2,000 years ago, all it takes to rule is bread and circuses right? Just food and entertainment in order to pacify a people group. Today, it looks like Super Bowl Sunday, right? So for good reason, in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds began to move to take Jesus by force to make him their king. And Jesus, well, he wasn't having it. And the crowds in John 6, weren't, they weren't looking to worship Jesus like his you know, easily seen in, in, in both European and, and American politics today. We don't look for our politicians to worship them. No, we want a free vending machine. 
We want a free vending machine of a king to set us up for life. If that was true in the first century, it's still true to this day. And what makes it a temptation for Jesus is not that he, he can or cannot do it. It's that it's a bloodless, crossless way to becoming king. And this is part of every temptation Jesus faced. You can be king, and it won't cost you. It would have been easy for Jesus to become king, but without his crucifixion and resurrection, his people would still die and remain in the ground, and more so, the world would remain in sin and death. Well, Jesus' response is this. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And he's quoting purposely Deuteronomy 8.3, which comes in the middle of instructions to Moses, from Moses, excuse me, to the generation who had grown up in the wilderness, living on manna, and who was on the cusp of taking the promised land. And here's how that whole passage reads, of which he's taking a part, and you're meant to get the whole context. The whole context says this, the whole commandment, this is Moses talking, that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus clearly understands himself as enduring the same sort of hunger and testing that both Adam and, and Israel endured. And what's fascinating is that in Matthew's account of the temptation, Jesus finishes out the line. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But in Luke's account, he doesn't. And as we'll see next week, I think it's because Luke understands Jesus in light of both Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. And when we see Jesus preaching in his hometown, we see the very word of God coming from his mouth. We'll get more on that next week. That's just a little tidbit. Well, second temptation. In verses 5 through 9, the devil shows Jesus in what appears to be a vision all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and offers them to him for the low, low price of worshiping Satan. Now, there's several things at work here. Uh, the vision aspect of what the devil is offering reminds us, I think, of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 of the four beasts which represent four successive empires and how they would be overcome by one like a son of man who conquered and was given dominion over the nations and ascended to the right hand of the ancient of days and received worship and honor alongside him. So that's a dominion given to a human who will be the ultimate king who receives worship, a human receiving worship alongside the Ancient of Days, or as we think of him, Yahweh or God the Father. So the question is, how will Jesus come into his kingdom? How will the Son of Man receive dominion over the world? And it's similar to the question, again, posed to Adam and Eve by the serpent. How will you become wise? By trusting God and keeping his word, and, and who knows how long it will take for him before he chooses to act in giving you this gift? 
or by listening to the serpent and taking wisdom for yourself right now. Now, after all, as Eve saw, the fruit was good. It was good. So why wait? Why, why not just make hay while the sun is high? There's no time like the present. Let's get it going. Grip it and rip it. And as an aside, isn't it telling that patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit that we routinely say no to? We will not wait on God to act. And like with Genesis 3, the devil is, is partially right. He's partially right in what he says to Jesus. And at that time, the devil did have dominion and authority over the kingdoms of this world. And all those kingdoms, if you pay attention to the Old Testament, are variations on Babel. But the devil's promise, like what Adam and Eve discovered, it's hollow. It's hollow. All those kingdoms, despite how glorious they were in their flowering, would, as, as Isaiah 40 describes it, like grass or the, the, the flowers of the field, they would wither and they would die eventually. So go to Rome or Babylon or Nineveh in their heyday. And you know what? They were. They were glorious. But they were also filled to the brim with sin and death. And all we see of them now is their ruins and what they once were. And all we could do is imagine. So there is a glory to them, to be sure. But they're also filled with evil. And wickedness. So, for example, despite all the innovations and glories we might attach to the Roman Empire, is really, in many ways, the empire of human history, its economy was run on slavery, in particular, sexual slavery. So, to give himself over to the word of the devil would be to get some version of power and dominion, but it comes at the high cost of being the son of God. And it's akin to the parable of the two sons, of which the younger son would gladly take his father's wealth at the cost of his father's death. And again, what's in view is a way to the throne that bypasses the cross. And Jesus responds again with a line from Deuteronomy. This time it's 6.13. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And of course, that's a summary of the 10 commandments. But the passage Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy comes in the context of Moses' warning about a future time for Israel after they would have entered the land and conquered their enemies and while they were enjoying the life that God had given to them that they forget. They forget that God gave all these things to them and in turn they go after other gods effectively listening to the voice of the devil. So whereas Adam and Israel turned away from God and listened to the voice of the serpent Jesus knows like the son of man in Daniel 7 that the gift of dominion can only come from the hand of his father. Well, with the third temptation, the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, to arguably the central most important location in Israel. And he says, if you are the son of God, prove it by throwing yourself off this building. As we all know, Jesus, God won't let you die. His angels won't let a thing happen to you. Well, here the devil is actually quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91, 11, which is a promise of God's protection for his people. And as many scholars have noted, if Jesus were, you, got, you have to see the picture here. If he were to descend, he's falling from the pinnacle of the temple, descending from heaven, as it were, 
and softly land in the midst of his people, could there be any question as to whether he was the Son of God or not? And this is exactly the sort of public appearance that people would love to see and the sort of sign or the kind of proof uh, the leaders of Israel wanted. And he shows up like this, falling from heaven, not a harm done to him. He's king without a cross. It's exactly the sort of thing that TV preachers have been trying to do or reproduce in some way since the 1980s. But the way Jesus responds points to something even deeper. Jesus quotes again Deuteronomy 10.20 and 6.16 together. He just kind of slams them together. 10.20 is a call to respond to God's love and his salvation through the Exodus as in God loves you, Israel. He saved you from sin and slavery and death and now respond to his love with love and faithfulness. Jesus' use of 6.16, you shall not put your God to the test, comes in, in the context of Exodus 17. When Israel questioned, we've already talked about this, when Israel questioned whether God was really among them or not, as in, did God bring us out of Egypt? through all that just to let us die. And again, the devil is calling into question whether God is really with his beloved son. If he is, he could end all speculation right now, arriving on the scene with a miraculous interest because the father would never let anything happen to him. And this, of course, anticipates the cross where Jesus would be led by the spirit to suffer deeply. Does God really love him if he lets him endure the hell of the cross? Jesus will not be put to the test because he knows it is, as, as, as author Just points out, that it is through faithfulness and it's through suffering and through his death and resurrection that the kingdom will come. And while God has promised protection and life to his people, as Job's life so poignantly shows, the Spirit may lead us into real pain and suffering, if not death itself. Even so, such things are not an indication that God does not love us or is against us. That's the lie that Job faced. Jesus faced it too. And all of us will face it at one point or another as well. No, Jesus' own suffering and his death and his resurrection is the guarantee that our sin and our suffering and our death is not the end of us and that our suffering is not in vain. And in fact, it has meaning even when we don't necessarily know what that is. So all of these temptations, as we've been going through them, call into question Jesus' identity and his status as the Son of God. And all of them, in one sense or another, they call into question God's love and his goodness. And they, in turn, were temptations for Jesus to take glory or to take power or pleasure or relieve his suffering on his own terms apart from God. So with Eve, you know, she could see that the fruit was good for eating. And her seeing, this shows up in the Bible, and we talked about this on Sunday night. It's an evaluation. It's, eva it's a judgment, right? The fruit was good just as bread would have been good for eating. And she took what was not offered to her. She could not wait on the Lord to provide. And it's no different than what David did to Bathsheba. Jesus, you shouldn't have to wait. You shouldn't have to wait 
on God to feed you. You can do it for yourself. And what's more, you shouldn't have to submit yourself to his timing and his plans in order to receive the kingdom. Why not feed people? What's wrong with being a bread king? How is that possibly a bad thing? Didn't your father promise you the world and glory and honor? I mean, that's what Daniel 7 says. We both know that passage, Jesus. Why does the lion of Judah have to be the lamb who was slain? Why not just be the lion? Why wouldn't you want to get people's attention, especially the Jewish leadership at the temple? Don't you want people to believe in you? Your own prophet Ezekiel says, God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Don't you want to save them too? How can, how can your father be loving? How can he be good if he lets you endure the cross? That's not loving. That's sadistic. It's child abuse. See, Satan and the temptations we face are nothing if not predictable. What we face today is no different than what Jesus faced in some measure. No different than what Adam and Eve faced and everyone in between. And there are always some version of you shouldn't have to wait on God to provide for you. You should just go ahead and take what you need and want. Because as everybody knows, it's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. You shouldn't have to endure with suffering or difficulty. You shouldn't have to curb your desires. If God really loved you, he would, he would not put you through any of this. If he was truly good, wouldn't he want you to be happy? So even as these temptations are easy to identify, it does not make them any less difficult to endure. So for example, even if you boil temptation to strictly economic terms, of choosing between two options. Say it's a cost-benefit analysis. While that's helpful, in the moment it's much harder. So let's just put it in real tangible terms here. So if I'm, if I'm offered the option of a donut, a donut, what do I gain and what do I lose by eating it? Well, you gain immediate gratification, both in the pleasure of taste, but also in the surge of dopamine that your body produces in reaction to the combination of the sugars and the carbs and the fats. And this is why a donut like fried chicken, y'all, it's a comfort food. It's a comfort food. It comforts you immediately. It's why children, given the choice, will choose junk food over healthy food every single time. Why not choose immediate gratification when it doesn't appear, at least in the moment, to be hurting me at all? It's just one donut, man. Lighten up. After all, Eve's first bite of the fruit was instantly pleasurable. Instantly pleasurable. And it didn't seem to affect anything. I mean, after all, she handed over to her husband and Adam said, well, it looks all right to me. And he ate too. And by the way, this is the same argument Americans make about sex. If it feels good in the moment, how can it possibly be hurting me now or in the future? But what do I lose by eating that donut? It'd be one thing if we can enjoy a bite and let it be that, but these foods are designed to forestall our satiety and cause us to keep eating long after the pleasure has subsided. So it's why laced potato chips, and some of you will remember this, in the 1980s, they straight up said in their advertising, I bet you can't eat just one. The joke was on us because they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew they had created a product that overwhelms our senses. 
for good reason, the tobacco industry, when they saw that the gig was starting to be up in America, went to the processed food industry. They knew exactly what they were doing. It's why it's easy, just do this experiment, to eat 2,000 calories of pizza or ice cream or Starbucks candied coffee, and it's really hard to eat 2,000 calories of grilled chicken or broccoli. Now, as an aside, when researchers want to quickly cause lab rats to become obese, they use almost exactly the ratio of sugars, fats, and carbs found in donuts, and the rats happily oblige. That's how it works. And the cost to enjoying these immediately comforting and cheap and delicious and pleasure-inducing and often addictive foods is our health, but you don't see it immediately. You know, virtually every modern chronic disease, which 150 years ago were rare, so think obesity and diabetes and heart disease and cancer and autoimmune disorders and fatty liver disease, all of that, they're all attached to the consumption of these foods and drinks. So the question in some sense is always, what do I gain and what do I lose? What do I gain and what do I lose? Of course, when we evaluate such questions in a controlled setting like this one, we don't have any food in here, right? In a lot of ways, this is just a, an academic exercise. It's easy to think these things through, but the temptation doesn't typically hit during a sermon. So when you're really hungry or going through a really stressful time, which is actually the more accurate one, or perhaps you're watching the Super Bowl, is it easier to choose grilled chicken and water or say junk food and booze? Why do we think, what do we think will actually bring us comfort or happiness or meet our deepest needs? And that's just food, y'all. That's just food. What about when the stakes are so much higher? Does God really love me? Does God really have my best interests at heart? Does God really want what's best for me? Because you know what? I'm in pain. My life is not going well. My life does not look like what I was promised it would. I can't seem to shake this anxiety. I can't seem to get over what happened. I feel so lonely. I feel so alienated. I feel so angry. I'm ashamed and guilty for what I did. I can't stop thinking about that moment. Temptation always offers an immediate gratification for what we think will fix us or bring us happiness or make things better. And it's temptation because we're enticed to find whatever we are looking for somewhere other than God. That's why G.K. Chesterton so aptly observed that when you see a man entering a brothel, that's a man looking for God. And I think he's right. So Jesus counted the cost and chose the love of his father and the redemption of his people over the immediate gratification of getting what had been promised to him on his own terms. Like Abraham, he trusted that God would provide. And the cost was great. Though the world was his for the taking, Jesus waited upon his father to give it to him as he promised he would do. And that's our calling too. That's our calling too. We have been given life in Christ Jesus. We have received his spirit. We have been made a part of his people and his body. And now we await the redemption and resurrection of our bodies. And what we endure in this life is hard. It's hard. 
Anyone who says otherwise is either a liar or is selling you something. And I don't care that we live in the most abundant country ever on the face of the planet. This life is hard. And it is full of temptation. And as people in union with Christ of the Spirit, we are going to face these things. Temptations that call into question the goodness of God and his ability to provide for our deepest desires and needs. But we do not face that temptation in our own strength. You just don't. To try and do it in your own strength is to just go ahead and say, I will fail. Jesus indwells us through his spirit. He doesn't merely arm us and say, here's a sword, good luck. No, he is our shield and our rock and our refuge. Life is hard, but Jesus, he's there every step of the way. You can't shake him. He's always with you. He's always leading you, and he will not let you go. So let me pray for us, and we'll end our time together. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. And though we grumble, and though we tend to give in to things easily, yet you remain faithful to us. You're the one who has chased us down. You're the one who has promised to never let us go. And what's more, you're the one who has promised to make us whole and to continue to work in us and move in us and sanctify us and make us more and more into the image of your Son. Lord, I pray for us that we would move from immaturity where we do not want to choose what is good and right to maturity where we would choose what is good and right because we desire it because it belongs to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.